Okay, so today we've got a slightly unusual format for the Metaverse podcast in that we've got two people on. We normally kind of only have one, so it's easier for me to kind of have a more natural conversation. But I think the kind of subject matter that we're going to be talking about today really warrants having both of these people on because really it's the output of a collaboration between the co-founder of Boson Protocol, who hopefully many of you already know, Justin Bannon, part of the Outlier Portfolio, and then Jason Potts, who's a professor of economics, and a collaboration they've had on some thought leadership, which is really framing the potential for what we might call crypto. So, you know, at Outlier, I personally, I use the term Web3 a lot to really think about how blockchain technology and tokenization can really allow for a redesign of the web and potentially for us to take us back to its original promise of this kind of peer-to-peer unmediated technology. But actually what's being proposed by both Justin and Jason is something much bigger than that, much bigger than just a kind of a an iterative improvement on the web, but actually a complete change of economic order. So if that hasn't whetted your appetite, I don't know what's going to. So welcome back onto the show, Justin, and welcome onto the show for the first time, Jason. So maybe before we kind of introduce Jason, Justin, welcome back on the show. A lot's been happening in the Boson Protocol ecosystem, both in kind of in terms of technological release, you know, upgrades and updates to the network, but then of course, kind of commercial traction that you're seeing. Maybe we could just get a, a quick summary of what's going on over there and, and what people should be excited about for, for 2024. Absolutely. So in the last year, we completed the full build of Boson Protocol V2, which is this kind of core trust minimized exchange in engine that enables the exchange of physical or real world assets without the need for an intermediary, plus a stack enabling anyone to tokenize real-world assets or products as NFTs. And that very much focused on a commercial use case. So we are also this month launching with strategic partnership with WooCommerce, who's the largest uh, e-commerce platform. So enabling at scale people to tokenize physical products and uh, as NFTs and, and sell them within Web3. Um, but in parallel, having sort of really completed that commerce part with, with, with Boson, we're now using this generic exchange mechanism to enable trust minimize exchange of assets within the sort of finance domain. Um, and so we're sort of, I guess, unveiling the true general nature and general purpose of Boson. And this sort of research is, is sort of very much linked to that vision. Yeah, very exciting. Now, for those people that would have been following Boson, hopefully they would have understand the technology is generalizable. But of course, a lot of the focus has been on this de-commerce, you know, decentralized commerce use cases and kind of stack. But you mentioned uh, real-world assets there. So RWAs, of course, have always been around in the narrative of Web3 and crypto, but never really realized. And I think we're starting to see a maturation of that now across the wider ecosystem, a lot of excitement and, of course, a lot of institutional interest coming into the space. And, of course, Boson is as applicable in that context as any other. But I think it's that RWA opportunity that is is the kind of core focus of this paper, because, of course, if Web3 technologies can't connect up with the real world, real world assets, then it's only going to have a very limited impact. But before we get into all of that, many people may already be aware, Justin, that you kind of have an academic 
background, a physicist by training, by qualification, but also straying into economics. And then, of course, uh, later in your career, crypto. Maybe you want to kind of just give a, a quick summary of that, because I think that's ultimately how Jason enters the picture. And there's a lot of parallels between your academic backgrounds there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started out doing a, a physics degree, having from a child being like very much a kind of like physics geek, if you like. But then start, started working and whilst working and running a sort of platform and stuff, did a master's in digital innovation. And I, I very much saw that this is almost like the rules of platforms and networks of effects I always saw as like the physics of business, if you like. So I did that first master's and then probably about five or six years ago now did a second master's in sort of crypto. And so those two masters come to quite a bit of economics. And so I guess there's three elements here that have a bit of a crossover. I think probably we all have a bit of a crossover, which is crypto, economics and physics. And so this research and Boson all combine those three threads, which which makes it all very interesting. So kind of segue into Jason. So how did you meet Jason? And then perhaps Jason can do a quick intro on his incredibly exciting background. So I reached out to Jason a while back when we Boson became a World Economic Forum technology pioneer. And I'd written a couple of like Medium articles and stuff like quite a few years ago. And, um, and I'd also I'd read all of, of, of Jason's work, I think, on crypto just because, you know, the way he viewed crypto, his analysis of it and what it meant was ex- that answered a lot of the questions that I was asking. And so I reached out to Jason and we co-wrote a paper which was published by the World Economic Forum, which was talking about, you know, what happens when you industrialize trust and begins of this sort of computable economy thesis. And so since then, we I think we've both been thinking a lot and we've been in sort of contact and been working on this second paper. Great. Okay. Jason, thanks for patiently waiting there. We kind of built up, we did the hype to kind of get to you now. So things I'm aware of, of course, you're director of Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT University. And I know you're kind of looking at automated decision-making and and various things as well as institutional economics. So um, I'll only do a poor job of trying to explain what you do, probably only understand a a small fraction of it. So I'm going to hand over to you and you can do a quick intro to who you are. All right. Thanks, Jamie. Look, it's great to be here. I'm an an economics professor. I'm a a, spent my life in universities as an economic theorist. And as Justin was sort of saying, I didn't start off there. I started off in physics as well, with an obsession in nuclear physics. And that sort of took me into economics because this, the math underneath physics is basically the same as the math in economics. They're both studies of complex systems. And what I've done for most of my career is actually just trying to answer the question, how do economies grow and evolve? And the center of my answer has always been that evolutionary theory and complexity theory and a lot of these techniques from physics and natural science are studying open, dynamic, complex systems can help us understand economic systems and particularly the dynamics of them. So that's what I've sort of done. I've come from a complex systems background. And along the way, obsessed with innovation, um, obsessed with new technologies, because that's the main driver of how where economic dynamics come from. And about 10 years ago, myself and research team, we sort of got obsessed with just very early stage new digital technologies. So we were looking into... Um, 3D printing, I think, and something else, and you know, crypto, whatever, whatever that was, and that was the rabbit hole that we just went down and just got obsessed by, you know, this weird new technology that seemed to be behaving differently to all the other innovation technologies we'd studied before. 
because what it was doing was it was behaving it was it wasn't an industrial technology it wasn't sort of you know making stuff that you put into the into shops and you buy them it wasn't being made by big firms it was this weird thing that was a technology for creating money that's not what technology does for making contracts and you know again what's that it's not how we're used to thinking about that and you know, we sort of very quickly put together this insight that what was going on here was what we're observing was an institutional technology, the, you know, the first of its kind. And you know, the, really the, the second of its kind. So the first of its kind was actually governments that were building you know, monies and law and order and so on. And here we had this rapid distributed and you know, open source creation of this new technology that was throwing off economic institutions. First, cryptocurrencies, private money. Then all of the sort of derivatives on that sort of heads off in towards DeFi. Then smart contracts, which enables you to make promises. And you thread those promises together and you wrap them around things and you start to head toward NFTs and, and non-fungible assets. Now assets are, are digital. And we just quickly realized that, okay, this is very early stages. Everything's a bit weird and new. But the thesis that we had was what we were observing was this transition from 200 years of an industrial economy where all the innovation is taking place in farms and you know, patentable and you know, in fact, exploited in factories to this new way of understanding a digital economy where all the innovation wasn't taking place in the production and consumption of consumer goods. It was taking place under the hood, the institutional layer. And that sort of that initial insight was the one that just really got us hooked and started us thinking down this line of, Okay, so that's a digital economy that's being constructed here. And this is sort of, I think, um, that's somewhere where we sort of picked up was just, uh, we were trying to explain this idea of a new type of economy that wasn't just, you know, and now computers are cheaper and better and faster and you know, all of the kids will have them. But rather, here's a new technology for building economies. And it wasn't, you know, it was, it was taking place at the level of now we've got a technology for spinning up economies, better, faster, cheaper ones. And for the first, you know, 5,000 years of human history, there was one, then there was five, then there was 10, and then this, at some point recently, there was 192. But there wasn't thousands or millions of them. But because, you know, creating an economy is expensive. You've got to have a money and you've got to have a legal system and you've got to have all of this infrastructure and identity and blah, blah, blah. And that, that sort of insight that what was fundamentally going on here was this transition to a technology stack for building economies. That's the revolution, or that's the transition that we think we're trying to describe now. It's almost like the invention of Lego itself, right? <laughs> it's a composable digital sort of thing for building whole economic systems at, at any scale. You can have little ones that you can put together for a particular purpose or big ones. They can be you know, this, this scale-free. And this is where we sort of started playing around with this computational notion of you know, what is a sort of computable economy? And I think you know, so like that's the that's the background <laughs> to present that. But the reason that sort of I've been excited, you know, my research team's been excited by this, and been fascinated with, with what um, Justin's been building there, was this is a full stack digital economy. For it to work, you can't have most of it digital and some of it not. The whole thing has to be digital, top to bottom. All the identity layers, the people, the capital, the money, the contract, everything. But if you can do that, you've now got. That's the transition from from an industrial economy to a fully new digital economy, and I think that was the idea we're trying to describe. Because if that's the transition we're going through, and you know, a that's we have you know historically the last time that happened was hundreds of years ago, and that gave us the modern world. 
Secondly, last time we did that, that also gave us things like countries and governments and you know, nation states and, and all sorts of you know, large-scale political infrastructure. And if what's going on right now is that's being built, then it's not just crypto, it's the digital stack. So now we can sort of start to understand how IoT fits into this. We can start to understand how orbiting satellites fit into this. We can start to understand how adding sort of other layers of AI and, and just, you know, wrapping everything physical in digital compute can pull together an economy. But the crypto layer here is the administrative layer, the, the administrative layer of keeping track of the just how many is out there, what's the where are these things? Just all of that that sort of information digital wrapping. So that's what we've been trying to sort of think through. But the reason you know, why we're excited about this is this theory that this is a historical, you know, if we write about this, then we are living right in the middle of a historical transition. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great way of framing it in thinking that this isn't, as you say, just an innovation, different forms of government, nation states, the firm in isolation, but it's a stack that allows for the creation of institutions. It's an institutional technology. I think you said that at the top end. I really like that. And of course, we frame, or we have historically at Outlier framed what you were talking about there at the end, where it kind of starts to combine with these other technology sets as convergence. And so things like AI and IoT have always been central to our view of this stuff. You know, if it doesn't connect up with all of that, if it doesn't reinforce it, if it doesn't give it a trust layer, then it hasn't reached its full potential. So the, you've done a really good job of kind of framing the paper there. I think the kind of title is around how Web3 unlocks exponential wealth and a computable economy. I know that you guys collaborated on it both individually and I'm, I'm assuming, you know, leveraging some of the kind of institutional um, resources there as well from, from both sides. So... Maybe let's get into, well, actually, I have a question at the top end, and it's for both of you, but perhaps you know more for you, Jason, which is, why do you think there's been so much resistance from professors of economics and economists to crypto? You know, Do you think it's just that they haven't been able to understand it in the same context as you, or it's because really a little bit of attention has been paid to it, and then that's usually just these speculative waves and that's led to it just being dismissed. Or is that changing? Has there been a sea change now where all of a sudden the world's economics have woken up to kind of your realization? Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I, this is what I spend my days doing, trying to persuade my colleagues of this. But I think I've been surprised that other economists haven't seen this clearly and obviously. Like Some have gotten there. But I think the first thing that happened was that they looked at it and saw money. So, oh, we, we know about money. We've got a theory of money. And they ran through their theory of money. So, oh, this isn't very good money. It's, it's, it's got some you know, problems there, you know, scarcity and whatever. And that's not what it is. It's one of its use cases is money. But the, what you're looking at here is a technology for building economies. And you know, it's not just economists. It's also political scientists and lawyers and sociologists have also fundamentally just grabbed um, that they haven't sort of seen this as a general purpose institutional technology that basically, you know, if you think of what is an economy, an economy is a group of people cooperating and coordinating all their joint activities using some sort of technology, right? Whether it's law or just culture or whatever. And the idea that, you know, code and algorithms and, you know, and math could actually perform that function 
it's a difficult leap to make because you've got to make that leap a little bit. You've got to completely just jump in there and go, all right, I can see how this could be a coordinating technology for, you know, to build a social, you know, to build social cooperation at scale. But once you see that, it becomes obvious. It's like, okay, then now we're dealing with, a, you know, I wonder how big we can make this and so on. And what's been striking is that we've had this thesis for years and we present it in the crypto universe and we present it to VCs and so on and, and we present it to engineers, they get it immediately. Um, we present it to economists and, and journalists and politicians and they really struggle with it. And I think it's, you know, I've, I've long tried to understand why that is and I think it's just one of these sort of just told things. You've got to, you have to see it in its entirety to understand it. It's quite simple and obvious once you see it. But that's what I think is going on. I, mean, it's just, I guess it's a willingness or a mindset to be open to something as disruptive or as innovative as this, right? Because I think your framing really kind of shows its potential. So, Justin, maybe let's go back to the title. I mean, I've read the paper. It's perfect length for somebody like me. You know, it, it's not too long that my attention doesn't creak at the same time. You, you fit a lot in there. There is a lot of time spent up front framing this in the context of technological innovations in an economic sense. I'm not going to spend too much time going through that here. People can read the paper. But if we come back to the title first, so this idea of a computable economy, you know, computable computation, that, that carries some baggage. So perhaps you can just unpack that for us a little bit to kind of help us better understand what you mean by that kind of language. What I mean by that type of language is if you take the sort of operations that a computer performs, you have a reliability of sort of input and output, sort of almost like a deterministic nature that you can reliably perform operations at a low level. And therefore, you can build higher level applications that do very complex things at a higher level. And there are lots of examples of this, you know, in sort of complexity and just, you know, the evolution of order across the universe. There's, there's lots of the examples of these things called like metastate transitions where the, the substrate that is being used, it's like going from wooden blocks to Lego to Meccano, or it's like going from RNA where you can form things like viruses to DNA where you can form complex life forms. So the substrate that's being used to perform these these operations is crucially important. And so with crypto technology, certainly with on-chain assets, you're able to very reliably set the conditions for, you know, of what is going to happen in these operations in a similar way to what you can do with a computer. And that more inherent programmability and reliability in the same way that DNA supports more complex life forms, crypto can support these more complex sort of economic programs on top, if you like. But of course, that property is limited by the degree to which this reliability extends and sort of natively extends to on-chain assets. And so, you know, the rest of the paper talks about and obviously, the core use case of Boson is extending that reliability, the properties of like DeFi level assurance to off-chain assets. And if you can do that, then then the whole economy can become as reliable, have this sort of reliability upgrade and programmability upgrade 
And I think that's the kind of key base property. I and mean, I would sort of defer to Jason to talk a bit more then about this kind of computability and et cetera. But, but for me, and that's what the, the direction I was coming to. And, you know, you can remember when I was on Basecamp Outlier, you know, the aha moment was, wait a minute, you know, if crypto, if all of these trust assumptions in crypto can only be applied to on-chain assets, then that's a very powerful niche technology in a very limited domain. Or, you know, and because, you know, the question before we, we, you know, we developed Boson was it, was it even possible to extend these, you know, but if you can extend these trust assumptions to real world assets, off chain assets, then suddenly, and, and this is like the second part of the realization where if you can do that, then the whole economy can take this upgrade from like wooden bricks to Lego. Cause, you know, Jason's been talking about it's a kit, it's a technology for building things. And we're talking about upgrading the technology for building things. So I think of it as like wooden blocks upgrading to Lego, Lego upgrading to Meccano. And that's the type of innovation this is. But yeah, I defer to Jason. So maybe Jason, so you mentioned the stack. And I guess the segue there is, is that at the top end, you said if this doesn't extend into everything, if it doesn't extend to the wider economy, if it doesn't converge with things like AI, then you know the whole thing has to become fully digitized. Now, you mentioned this stack, this kind of institutional stack. Could you maybe just talk us through that? Like, what are the pieces that you see currently, and then perhaps you know what are the limitations today as to what's possible with that stack? Because if we look at say DAOs, for example. I think there's a lot of frustration with how little is actually being achieved with DAOs today, even though we all collectively know that they're going to become very powerful institutional instruments. So on DAOs, just starting right there, I think, you know, first thing to remember is that you know, a DAO is a you know, decentralized digital company, right? Companies took hundreds of years for us to figure out how to use them well. So I think we're doing incredible work to just in a few years to get them, you know, not horrible. I think it's not bad, but like, I mean, the, the idea we've been playing with and just, just sort of customers emphasizing sort of reliability and composability, I'll, I'll still step just back on that. I think the basic sort of insight here is an economy is a computer, right? A computer, what is a computer? It takes information. It's a state machine that transforms that information with its rules, its code into another information set. And it just keeps doing that, right? You know, computers transform information. Economies transform information. And the rules in an economy, I think of an economy as a computer, but humans make decisions. We take information in and then we process this and to make outputs. Firms, factories, and so on do that. But the, the main compute part in an economy is its markets. And a market is a, a phenomenal compute, the thing that takes property rights, looks at the exchange of ratios for those, and computes prices. And those prices then become information inputs for everyone to adjust their behavior. So it's a massive parallel computer where most of the compute is taking place in prices. And that's what makes it scalable and global and why money is so important in this. But the, the thing is that the, all of the sort of way in which the rules get in, most of those rules are analog. They're behavioral. They're designed for humans to work with other humans and to compute these weird little artificial things called prices. But where we have gotten computers in there, like that's the parts, the, those parts of the economy work spectacularly well. So sort of the global financial markets and you know, various other markets that have got lots of depth, and, you know, as information processes. But then there's large parts of the economy and particularly lots of physical capital and, and, and other 
resources that are very, very analog to get those things into the compute part of it, to, to feed them through. You've got to wrap them in standards, and then you've got to have all sorts of agents acting on their behalf, and then you've got to do all of these sort of processes that get them able to be, so that other things can talk to them and interact with them. And those, that institutional technology more or less hasn't changed for hundreds of years. We still mostly do that stuff the way we did it last century and the century before that even. Yeah, there's a bit more of it in some parts we've, we've upgraded, but mostly it hasn't. So what you have is that the limits of an economy as a computer, basically the limits of how much we can sort of enable all of these parts to come together. And that's when the stack kicks in. We need identity. Everything in the economy, every component has to be able to say what it is. And it has to be able to say what it is to everything else. Once we've got identity, then we can do search. Then I can find all of the things. Then I need identity and search. I need properties. Like I need to know what it's allowed to do, who it's allowed to talk to, what it can, and so on. That's the composability aspect. And you know, we keep on sort of laying that stack up. And what we have is basically an operating system for an economy such that all of the resources and all of the things and all of the permissions and all of the contracts and all of the promises and all of the value that's in there, as fine as we can possibly write that, can then interact with all of the other parts of it. And you know, that's a perfectly computable economy. And we, we kind of theoretically know the property, what sort of properties that would have. One, it would be amazingly efficient. One, it would be amazingly sort of fast. It would probably be orders of magnitude bigger you know, with no technological change in that. But so where we are now is is not you know we don't need fantastic new technologies from the future we just we just need to basically digitally wrap everything and then you know bring that transition in so the technology the, the the sort of the stack the institutional stack is just basic stuff like what is it where is it what is it allowed to do what promises is it made to other things what where what is its state at this point in time and that that metaphor of you know state economy as state machine and you know economic change is just an updating of state. You know, we've, we've seen that now in layer one blockchains, right? They, this metaphor of them as state machines, and not metaphor, they are state machines, but there's lots of parts of the economy that aren't yet. And you know, this is what we need. You know, we need sensors on things to be able to you know, act as oracles. We need cryptography to be able to, to verify or encryption to verify that something isn't changed or that. We need sort of processing just everywhere. So the more and more things basically become agentic and sort of function as, as agents. At the moment, it's only really the humans that can do that. And, and again, only some of the humans are good at that or have access to that. So there, there's, there's a huge amount, you know, as a computer, the global economies, you know, it's amazing. It kind of, you know, it's an analog, mostly an analog computer. It mostly sucks. But what's amazing is that it kind of cranks out anything at all. You know, there's a huge way to run on just getting that thing up and running so that it's um, so that everything is connected. That's our lifetime, right? That's where we are now, right at the beginning of that process. The last time we did it, it took about two, three hundred years. I think we'll get there a lot faster this time. But this is basically a story of institutional skinning, of you know, wrapping and 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 connecting of just all of the things. And that's the opportunity for the next, you know decades, whatever, whatever it is to do this. But the other crazy thing is that this is taking place at global scale. It's starting in various countries or various cities and, and growing out from there. But this isn't an American thing or a British thing or an Australian thing or, or whatever. It's born global. And it's, it's incredible, incredible to see that it's also born global and competitive. There's an open race to just do this as well as possible. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, of course, that's its permissionlessness, which makes it so exciting. And I do want to actually come back to this question around its global nature, its permissionless nature, and how the status quo of other institutional entities might have to negotiate or interact with it. But before we do that, let's kind of stay on the stack side. And it's really interesting you mentioned you know, this needs to go to agents, of course, AAs, autonomous economic agents, have always been very exciting for us. Um, Fetch.ai, big part of our portfolio and, and kind of the promise there where we can outsource greater levels of economic activity and complexity to that, that automation. So we've got this institutional stack, as you say, it, it's still relatively early, but it's maturing or hardening in kind of technical terms at uh, greater, greater rates. But Justin, there are kind of limitations, right, currently, you know, so if we're talking about extending this trust to more parts of the economy, in a smaller sense, across supply chains, from on-chain to off-chain and real-world assets, what are the kind of missing pieces? And and I know for you specifically, uh, the the kind of role you think Boson can play there in extending that trust. Sure. Well, I think everyone... Well, most people in crypto understand the importance of data oracles like Chainlink, of you know, feeding smart contracts, you know, verifiable information, and that's a massive part of it. But the second part really is being able to act in a verifiable way as well. And so we view Boson as this sort of generalized, what we call an actuator oracle, that it's able to perform reliably perform off-chain actions. So if you think about a data oracles like the eyes of a, of a blockchain, then technologies like actuator oracles would be like the hands. But certainly what we see at the moment is a very encouraging move towards tokenizing real-world assets, etc. But this is very much using, I guess, blockchain technology to tokenize physical assets, but with exactly the same trust assumptions as traditional finance. And so, the, you know, the example we use is that, you know, if if FTX had been tokenizing gold bars and been the custodian for them, and you'd been issued a, an NFT in lieu of a gold bar, you'd have a lot of problems at the moment, right? It wouldn't have the reliability and trust assumptions of DeFi. And, and what, so it's not just the technology, it's using the technology to deliver this kind of reliability and trust assumptions. So that is, I think, a big gap. One that we've certainly closed within commerce and are now in development a solution that will work with a lot of these trusted, very domain-specific real-world asset sort of tokenizers to create an overlay, like a you know, a, a trust-minimized overlay so that buyers of these assets can get the best of both worlds. They can have, you know, an asset that's tokenized buy a specific issuer, but have the kind of DeFi level trust assurances as well. I think that's sort of a major, major gap that needs to be closed, that we're not just bringing things in a trusted way onto a blockchain that are subject to the same failure, but we actually have these trust assumptions. I think probably understanding, because all this trust minimization and stuff is still very poorly understood outside of crypto. It's one of the, the difficult conversations to have with anyone, right? And I think then that you know the technology has been a challenge uh, previously, but obviously that's that's something that we've spent years solving and are looking to plug that gap. So maybe if we kind of talk about it in the context of e-commerce, because obviously that's something that's been a, a big focus for you guys over the last 
a couple of years, you say you kind of now effectively solve that problem in the context of decentralized commerce for kind of retailers by both sides of that, that marketplace, right? Where you could have e-commerce carried out in a decentralized way without the requirement for a platform. But of course, there are other mediators that you, you kind of bring in almost like a marketplace of, of mediation. Could you maybe just talk through that? So this Christmas, for example, I bought things like probably most people online. Um, I used platforms to do that. Most of it went pretty well. So I used one platform. I won't name them because they might still help me solve the problem. But effectively, it connected you to SMEs, you know, like small businesses who were making artisanal stuff. You know, they're not proper businesses in many cases. Uh, In this case, it was for some jewelry. We carried out the transaction. They had that particular merchant had a seven-day return policy. I realized there's something fundamentally wrong with that thing after that seven-day return policy. And actually, in this case, the platform's not even there to solve the problem. It's like, well, it's outside the seven-day period. Now, actually, it looks like I was potentially defrauded because how it was advertised versus how it was is discernibly different. It just took me more than seven days to figure it out, sadly. And I think, well, what would have happened if that was carried out in a smart contract? I, currently, I would have definitely lost my money because you know I received the good. I effectively signed it off as saying I've received it. It looks okay. The merchant would have received all the money, and then that's it. There's no recourse. So if first-level e-commerce, we're just going to replace that with a smart contract, would have actually left me with a lot of problems that I hopefully don't have when a platform's there. So it's a very small example, but could you talk about how Boson technology, Boson-like technology, effectively allows for that full thing to happen with full dispute resolution and everything else in the context of e-commerce. Sure. I mean, you've got a couple of problems there. One is this like fair exchange problem, which we have with e-commerce, which is, you know, if the buyer sends their money first, then how do they know they'll get the goods? And if the seller sends the goods, how do they know they'll get the money, etc.? But secondly, I mean, how Boson works is basically it will escrow the funds and issue. So a seller will make an offer of a physical item The buyer will see that offer and that offer includes not just the price and what they're going to get in return, but then some more important contractual terms in terms of how, you know, quite important ones or how you would prove the quality, you know, contract was met, for example. But a buyer would make a purchase and receive an NFT. Now, this happens quite a lot with, you know, to selling physical items as NFTs. But the difference with Boson is once you've got that NFT, you've got this kind of strong assurance that either you'll get the item and your money back. Whereas, you know, if you're just trusting, you know, someone to issue an NFT, you know, with the promise that they're going to give you the physical, then that you have a real kind of trust problem there. But once a buyer has this NFT, they can choose to trade that or whatever. But eventually someone decides that they're going to redeem for the physical item. What happens then is the seller has then an obligation to fulfill the contract. If everything goes fine, then after a certain period, the seller will get paid. However, if within a certain period, which is called the dispute period, the buyer complains, then what happens is the protocol will start what's called this mutual resolution period where buyer and seller can just talk and if they both agree to an outcome, which might be, oh, okay, we're going to give you a 30% refund, then the protocol will execute that agreement. If they fail to resolve that mutually, 
then it will get escalated to an independent dispute resolver. It can be anything from fully decentralized, like a Kleros, you know, which is expensive, but, you know, very, very trust minimized to an independent dispute resolver that's, you know, quite neutral, who will review the contract and the evidence sort of, you know, requirements and make a determination about how that money split. So in that way, you know, you have this sort of independence, but also you've got this dial, which is like a trust grayscale, if you like, because being decentralizing trust and minimizing trust can be quite expensive. And obviously for certain, you know, depending on the price of the item, you need to be able to kind of turn that dial to get this trade-off between you know, kind of affordability and levels of decentralization. In your case, yeah, I mean, there's a period during which a dispute can be raised. And if that dispute is raised, I mean, obviously, there still is an element of buyer beware that you need to look at who is the dispute resolver. Is that sufficiently decentralized? Do you have confidence that fair adjudication will be made? But what it does mean is, I mean, you're talking about SMEs, but you could go and buy, whether it's in the metaverse or pseudonymously online, you could go and buy something from a completely unknown entity and still have these high levels of trust and verification without having to rely on, you know, the the kind of seller to do that. Those sort of principles. And, you know, we had a lot of brain power input to design that. So we had, who I know Jason's written papers with uh, Dr. Primavera de Filippi, wrote um, a lot of the techno-legal innovation. You know, there's a, a whole kind of little game theory black box with, with with a bit of configurable game theory in there for the mutual resolution. We've had one of the, the protocol designers for Ethereum Foundation design. So there's a lot of brain power that's gone into creating something that works, but the hardest part was to make it simple enough to actually be, you know, practical. So, yeah, I mean, at a high level, that's how it works for commerce. And what we're doing is then porting that mechanism over as an overlay so that you can go and buy from, let's say, you know, when I FTX, you could go and buy an NFT for a, that represents a claim on a gold bar, but you would still have these DeFi level trust assumptions by virtue of the boson RWA trust bridge. And I think the important thing here is obviously it's not going to be any one entity, Boson or anyone else, that's going to build that whole stack, right? What you're doing is you're seeding primitives into this trust machine effectively, which others can build on. And so, for example, you might, through the current stack at Boson, have solved a degree of trust in a particular context, but somebody can then take it, repurpose it, apply and extend it. And I don't know if this is the right framing, but effectively, this kind of trust marketplace of trust can begin to kind of solve the problem with increasing levels of complexity. Because I think even for me, an advocate of crypto and and Web3 and self-sovereignty, sovereignty comes at a cost, you know. So many times when I talk to people, they don't really want sovereignty. Like they like the idea of it, but like practically when you say, okay, well, now you've got to do this, this, and this. And by the way, if you sign that thing, and it's something you shouldn't sign, you're going to lose everything. Then all of a sudden, they start to kind of creep back and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to leave my assets on a centralized exchange, for example, because it's just it's safer for me to do that than you know do something through my browser and use DEXs. So how does this problem solve itself where this thing becomes 
usable enough whereby it solves for the cost of trust or the cost for lack of trust in the wider world, but the cost of sovereignty isn't so high that it's a point of friction. Yeah. So I think why I'm excited about this, why I feel that this, this um, you know, what Boson is building is, is absolutely in the right direction, is one, it enables us to take a thing, you know, trust and sovereignty and, and so on, and be really precise about what the trade-off is. Right? And I can choose this level of it, or this. there's a dial that I can go up and down. For most of the world that you live in, it's not like that. You, you either have to have none, this quantity that you're provided, or different. You know, in many industries, in many markets, you know, over hundreds of years, we've kind of evolved solutions where shopping malls, for instance, or, or particular things so have, have sort of worked out intermediate layers to sort of build in the types of trust assumptions and the, the level of assurance that the particular group of clients or customers want. You know, second-hand car markets do it in one way and bond markets do it in a different way. And you know, that, that sort of enormous institutional complexity of com- stacking companies on top of companies on top of companies is how we kind of modulate that, you know, I want this amount of trust and assurance for this particular product. We kind of get there, but it's crazy expensive, slow. Innovation is more or less frozen. What we lack is this sort of fast modular ability to, for you know, each person to figure out how much trust and assurance and counterparty verification they need for every particular thing. And you know, that's just a thing that hasn't been physically possible to actually find that trade-off for every particular transaction. And we've just had to bucket everything up and take you know big averages of stuff. And you know, sometimes it's pretty good, but generally it'll be the height too much or too little. So you know, what we've got now is this infrastructure where we can start to build incredibly complex, really specific trade-offs about for every transaction and every commodity for every person about those kind of levels. You know, that's compute, right? We're just doing much, much more compute because we've got much more institutional complexity because it's all digital all the way up and down. We'll start wherever we start, and then we'll add more, and then we'll add more, and we'll keep on adding more. But there's no limit to that. I mean, the, the limit there is every microtransaction has exactly not more, not less, trust, assurance, verification, and, and all of the sort of institutional assurance you need. And we're doing it at minimum cost, right? So there's no such thing as you know, all trust has a cost. We did some work actually a few years on this trying to measure just how much. And, and the back of the envelope calculation is basically one third of the global economy is just spent on trust. Just everyone checking everyone else's work and assuring that no one's lying to each other. And, and that's, you know, it's not like a few percent. It's, it's a massive amount. And the reason it's a massive amount is just it's hard to do. And it's, hard, it's especially hard to scale. That's the nature of the opportunity here is we're driving down a fundamental cost of every single trend component of the economy. And we're doing it not just driving the cost down, but we're getting it precise such that it's cost-benefit trade-offs are able to be negotiated just because it's cheap and easy to do that. So Jason, I think that was a really great way of quantifying what it can fix. So one third of global economies based on trust, checking you know somebody else's homework. I think that clearly shows just from an efficiency perspective, a potential gain that's there. And I also really like the framing that it's kind of zero or one at the moment. You either trust FTX or you don't. You either trust Facebook or you don't. And you kind of just hope that these other institutions will 
retrospectively kind of keep up. So regulators keeping up with FTX, regulators keeping up with Facebook, even though we know that's an almost an impossible task given the rate of innovation that's happening. So I think that's super interesting. And of course, my next question would be, you know, what happens to growth when you remove or reduce the cost of trust in a kind of global and permissionless sense? This is exactly the same thing as reducing any cost. We get more of it. You know, demand curve slope downwards. When something that is good costs less, costs fewer amount of time or resources to do it, we just do more of it, right? Or we can put it in more things. I mean, trust is a cost. It's a fundamental, you know, we have to put resources into to doing it. So that limits the amount of things we can do with trust. And what do we do with trust? We cooperate, we transact, we find ways. And this is one of the main limitations to a global economy is that one of the ways I economize on trust is I only trade with people I know. I stay local. I stick to brands I know. Now, both of those things are fundamental limitations on competition. It's harder for new things to enter. It's harder for me to find you know, the real person I should be interacting with might be in Portugal right now, but here I am in Australia, so that's just never going to happen. And you know, this, we've known this since Adam Smith, right? The, you know, the fundamental limitations of, on the growth of knowledge are limits of the market. And if we find ways to expand that market, and one of the basic ways we do it is we lower the cost of trust, we get more economic growth, we get more wealth. We've known about this forever. In a macro sense then, I mean, I guess currently we're talking about parallel economic systems. I guess, Justin, what you're talking about is connecting these two things up. So they're integrated, or I think you use the word overlaying, Web3-like technology on global economy. What is your perspective, perhaps your collective perspective, I don't know if it's a shared one between both of you, uh, Justin and Jason, on how the status quo reacts to this? So as we know, in a regulatory sense, which is increasingly political, that varies dramatically. If you're looking at Latin America and, and certain presidents that are being elected there in countries, crypto is at the very forefront of what they believe to be a revolutionizing of economic order in that particular nation state and perhaps standing in a global sense versus the US and Europe. I know they are in and of themselves complex systems that can be sometimes difficult to understand, but what is your perspective on how this will play out. I guess Bitcoin ETFs, where you have, say, Jamie Dimon still saying, well, crypto and Bitcoins, you know, for sex trafficking and drugs, and yet they're participating in it anyway. So what's your kind of perspective on where this goes? Maybe start with Justin. My perspective is that these changes are driving an ability to create much greater complexity. And from much greater economic complexity, we get you know, this kind of exponential wealth that we've seen. And I think that is an unstoppable force. And if you look at, it doesn't mean that the US is necessarily, you know, the US, you know, may try and stand in the way of it. Personally, I I think it's going to be politically impossible for them, certain factors of the American political elite and regulators to block, you know, the US from participating in this because the wealth generation potential is so enormous and it just won't be politically acceptable to sideline the US. But, you know, we're going to see in jurisdictions that embrace this and support this appropriately, enormous wealth generation. And I think, you know, it's going to be, you know, another 
race to kind of capture and upgrade economies to be part of that, because otherwise we'll see what we've seen historically where, you know, different waves of industrial revolution start in one area, whether that's Britain and, you know, then move to kind of like Germany and US and economies can get left behind to stagnate. It's not a given that every advanced economy is going to continue to this next level, right? Jason, if you have anything to add to that, I mean, I guess this idea that crypto is this growth machine, and I've said for a few years that it has the potential, because it's the only thing I can think of that gives some framing to people, but it's a global growth machine that will be orders of magnitude bigger than what China had contributed to the global economy over the last kind of couple of decades. I have no way of quantifying that. Maybe, Jason, you guys have done the work, but... <laughs> no, I completely agree with that. And I think it's not just crypto, it's, it's the digital stack that is bringing in these new institutional orders. And you know the, the modern industrial economies, they began when we had you know, good governments that could provide law and order and administration and public goods and so on. That was a revolution. You know, in the feudal era, we didn't have that. We, we had sort of much more restricted notions of kingdoms that sometimes worked. So the industrial order for the past 300 years that has created you know, this exponential growth in wealth, that began with this institutional political order you know, to create you know, safety to trade at the nation state level. First of all, we know that creating high quality institutional technologies is a massive orders of magnitude driver of wealth. Um, now we're seeing it play out you know, again, better, global, composable, reliable, modular. Um, you know, this, but it's again, not just crypto, it's, it's the full tech stack of being able to bring in AI and oracles and cloud and just all of the storage and compute and so on together. But I think the, the other part of the story here is all innovation is disruptive. You know, innovation is socially disruptive. And it usually affects some groups win, other groups lose. And there's a sort of political process of managing that, of taxing the winners and compensating the losers. And so long as everything happens slowly enough, it doesn't cause revolution. And you know, industrial economy was massive technological changes, but they, that took place over centuries with an incredible acceleration of technological change. And it's, it's occurring at the institutional level. So this will be disruptive. There's no doubt about that. And I think and my prediction here is that the industrial politics of left and right of allocation, reallocation to different groups, you know, capital owners or labor owners, that industrial political shift uh, or political sort of you know, organization, I think that gives way. We're starting to see you know, accelerationists versus decelerationists, right? This, this, do we go faster or do we try and stop? And if there's not left or right. There's left and right and both accelerationists and there's left and right decelerationists. But that that sort of that political shift to what do we you know, because one of those two options is going to happen, right? Um and and I think that's the new sort of coalitions that, that are starting to form. And you can see it in existing political parties that they're they're split on this. There's you know, every major political party has a, a crypto wing and a not crypto wing. And it's not that this group does and that group doesn't. It's it's weird and complex. And I think that's reflecting this this shift. So, look, I mean, I think, I mean, so what that means, I think what we need is new political parties around this. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I guess to an extent we're seeing it, right? We're already seeing US, on the US presidential campaign, you know, candidates that very clearly place crypto, at least in an economic context, front and center of policy. And we've already seen some elected in Latin America. And I guess it comes back to your earlier point, Justin, which is, I mean, everyone's looking for growth right now, right? We're in a low growth, you know, stagflation type global economy. 
if there's any growth machine at all, there's going to be a lot of political will to pursue it, potentially even at all costs. But I guess, you know, given the permissionlessness of what we're talking about, and as you said, you know, we no longer need these localized trust machines, a brand or a particular policy in a particular country. We're really talking about a true globalization of economic trade. Now, at the same time, there seems to be this political backdrop of isolationism and trade barriers. And I would imagine in a political sense, if you're using the same mental constructs of of globalism, is it good or bad, or free market fundamentalism, you could argue here where you're talking about just basically creating a digital free market and people have, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that, right, you know, already. Again, maybe another question for you, Jason. Do you think those arguments just dissolve away? Because actually, yes, we're talking about globalism, but we're talking about globalism that enhances and protects the individual and their rights and their sovereign rights or... How do you see that? I think it does in the sense of this is different this time because that sort of, you know, global free marketism versus a sort of global, you know, nation state, you know, world politics, that that's a creature of left right. That's a creature of 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 a sort of industrial politics. Whereas what's new and different here is just protocols. You select in or out of them and you don't you don't have to have just one. We can have Two or ten or a hundred or a thousand. You know, they can they can stack up and they can they can interweave and they can be partially modular and they can be privately built, they can be publicly built. That idea that, you know, we're not sort of fighting over finite territory where we all have to make a decision one way or the other. This is the, the sort of beautiful thing about the internet, is is that it's a network of networks of networks that are just stacked around on top of each other, and you can join this bit, but not that bit. If that's what we mean by voluntary sovereignty where you join you find your people and you join your tribe and you you use that particular infrastructure for this the only thing the only way that can go wrong is if that prohibits you from using something else or if that stops if that locks you out of something else that sort of monopoly aspect of it but my optimistic sense of this is that that's not where we're heading that you know we could go there there are pathways that could take us there if we all have to make the same decisions about cybersecurity or you know what about privacy so long as we have openness to be able to join particular protocols and that those protocols are interoperable. We can create all sorts of things. That, like, that's the beginning of this sort of rebuilding of global complexity in a way where respecting individual sovereignty. Now, okay, that's, will that happen? Um, who knows? Possible. And it feels like, you know, that's the open source stream. That's what all the sort of cyberpunks and, and so on, that's what we have been trying to do for the last sort of many decades of developing these technologies. I'm still optimistic that we can get there. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, I could talk about this with uh, both of you you all day, and it never ends, right? Because it just opens up so, so many new questions. And we at the beginning part of 23, we released a paper called The Open Metaverse Under Attack, which talks about how degrees of centralization that's creeping into Web3 at all levels of the stack can lead to censorship. We're already seeing that with stable coins, for example. So there's still a big fight to be had. As you say, there's a number of different pathways it could take. Hopefully, the worst case is that 
we have these parallel pathways happening, some of which, you know, might not be as favorable as others, but there's always an option. There's always a kind of a get out because of the openness of this technology stack, its configurability. And someone somewhere will create an alternative that perhaps meets the requirement of people like us, primarily because it would be good business for them to solve, to solve that problem, right? To create that configuration. So from a market's perspective, you'd imagine that would be solved for. But maybe we kind of bring it down a bit. I'm also very grateful Jason, you've allowed us to, to start the year with some hope and utopianism. Justin, let's kind of come back down now to how Boson is going to be applying this over the course of the next year from a technological perspective and, and how you intend to kind of roll it out. So, you know, our big vision for Boson is to be a sort of like a universal trust layer for a new sort of Web3 computable economy. We've built that out on a full stack application in commerce. And over the next year, we will be rolling out a number of solutions, starting with a what we call a, a real world asset trust bridge that's going to enable people to buy tokenized real world assets, but via Boson, so overlaying other protocols, providing that sort of DeFi level assurance for real world asset purchases. But, you know, the core technology underneath Boson is like super generic. And I think as this Web3 economy grows and expands, we will you know continue to extend and develop that to become this sort of generic trust layer. Maybe to kind of close off, I'd recommend people go and read the paper. There's a lot we didn't talk about, as I said, that kind of builds up the context and expands upon many of the points that we mentioned. Justin, where can people find it? Perhaps if we give you a provide a link, we can stick that in the notes. In the footnotes as well, but I'm, I'm guessing it's somewhere on the Boson website as well, right? They should be able to find it there. Yeah, great. And we'll also put in the show notes how you can find both Jason and Justin. And perhaps kind of closing though, I'd just say that to your point, as a new politics emerges... I think the kind of accelerationist one perhaps is more generalized now. It perhaps doesn't necessarily always have kind of things that we're talking about as its central driver. I'd imagine that's going to gradually change. I really hope that the politicians that are being elected now in that context seek out people like yourself to make sure that their economic policies have some of this at the core because it's incredibly depressing when you see in pretty much every country, right? You know, they lay out, a new party comes in, they lay out all their policy and it just doesn't reflect the direction of travel that we all know is going to happen. It doesn't prioritize this new form of economic growth that is possible. It very much kind of just uses a very dated assumptions and frameworks. So hopefully some of them are listening to the podcast now and kind of find some of your collective work. But um, Jason, I know um, a big body of your work has been around this. So that is my hope, the energy I'm going to put out into the universe for people that are watching this. But a big thank you for coming on the show. I could have done this for another hour, to be honest with you, but sadly, I need to be respectful of your time. Thanks for coming on. Cool. Thanks, Jamie. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jason. If you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3 